If you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 137, and the text is also printed in the bulletin. Uh, This is a hard one for a lot of people, Psalm 137. Um, It's an imprecatory psalm, a prayer that's asking God, uh, or relying on God, to restore justice, to uh, curse the enemies of his people. Uh, And we've looked at that category of psalm in our series before, but this one might be the most uh, difficult psalm for many in our culture because it's so graphic, especially there at the end. It seems so savage, I think, to a lot of people. Uh, It progresses from, in the beginning here, uh, from bitter, inconsolable grief to end up in uh, ferocious anger. You can can feel the anger of it. Your non-Christian neighbors uh, might think it's barbaric. And it might be a bit embarrassing for you to admit that a psalm like this is in the Bible. It was probably more than a bit embarrassing for God's people uh, when they first prayed it in earshot of their enemies. A little bit more embarrassing than it is for us today. But, um, but still, we can maybe feel that uh, tension with our culture. But even Christians might genuinely struggle to uh, reconcile this one with Jesus' commands, uh, for example, to love and pray for your enemies. Um, you know, just tell you right now, this, this isn't going to be all that can be said on the, the topic of how to interact with your enemies, how to act toward them. Uh, as I was writing this psalm, I probably wrote this, uh, this sermon on this psalm like uh, three times over until uh, I figured out, no, we just need to talk about what the psalm is about. Uh, not explore all the, uh, the avenues, all the connections, not give all the caveats, not give a whole biblical picture of... Uh, everything um, that can be said on how to interact with your enemies. We're just going to talk about what this psalm is about. And Jesus has no problem with this psalm. Uh, We might have lots of problems with this psalm. Jesus has no problem with this psalm. He isn't surprised by it. He isn't embarrassed by it. He isn't confused at how, how to use it in prayer. He doesn't think the Bible would be better off without it if we never had to talk about Psalm 137 much. I don't know whether we can always understand Jesus. Maybe that's a thought that's never really struck you before. I'm not sure we can always understand Jesus, or whether it's even possible that our judgment would always perfectly align with his judgment on every matter. But maybe that shouldn't surprise us, uh, because, after all, he is the only righteous judge. And a big part of being a Christian means you're submitting yourself to Jesus' judgment. You're submitting yourself to God's judgment, and we're turning our judgment over to Him. So, however we might feel about a psalm like this, whatever our instinct might be, or our judgment about it, if Jesus approves of this psalm, we should assume that He's right, and that it is good, and we can ask Him for the help of His Spirit to see it, to use it well, uh, or at the very least, for the help of his spirit to just trust him when it comes to this one. <laughs> um, so we're, we're going to ask for the help of his spirit now, and then we'll read it. Uh, let's pray first. <clears throat> our Father in heaven, our older brother in heaven, Lord Jesus Christ, we pray for your spirit now. Um, we always need your Holy Spirit's help when it comes to your word, to the way that your word often overturns the tables in our hearts and in our minds. We need the renewal that comes from your Holy Spirit to be able to see this word as you see it, 
We pray that you'd help us not to judge your word, but to be judged by it, to submit ourselves to it. We pray for that help now, in Jesus' name. Amen. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. For there, our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, Lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It's good to be thankful to God for his word, even the hard parts. It's about 600 years before Christ, so it was about 2,600 years ago, uh, the setting for this psalm takes place. The Jewish people were invaded by the ruthless Babylonian Empire. Uh, We read about that in history, and uh, when you read something in a history book, you read something in the histories of the scriptures, uh, the full impact of it doesn't really settle in on you. They were invaded by the ruthless Babylonian Empire. Jerusalem was conquered in in the most terrible warfare. And the survivors, the prisoners of war, were carried off into captivity. They, the survivors, who's singing this psalm, they had seen their home destroyed. They'd seen their city, their beloved city, and the temple, God's temple. They'd seen it all destroyed. They'd seen their families and their friends and their fellow countrymen killed before their eyes in brutal ways. And now they're on a forced march out of their land, out of the only land that they've ever known as home, to relocate and settle in the heart of enemy territory where, where they would live in constant memory of their pain. Everything around them would be a reminder of their pain. And I guess most of us here today can hardly begin to imagine what this is like. Unfortunately, a brief survey of history or even current global events would indicate that a great many people can imagine what this is like. A great many people can understand, they can relate to what God's people suffered at the hands of the Babylonians. The horrors of, of genocide, ethnic cleansing, total war, Uh, Slavery, displacement of large groups of peoples, and persecutions are all too common in this world. No land, no people, no nation has been untouched by such things. If you can begin to empathize with such suffering, then, um, then maybe you can begin to see the good in this psalm. It's normal to be angry about such things. <clears throat> In fact, I think we can say that 
<clears throat> it's good and right to be angry at such things. <clears throat> These things aren't meant to happen. Human beings created in the image of God, uh, in the image of the God of love, the triune God of love, for relationships of love with God and with each other, we should not sin against God and do such things as these to fellow human beings. <clears throat> the survivors of the Babylonian catastrophe um, had already suffered utter defeat, but now, now as this psalm is being sung, on top of it all, they're being called to forsake their identity, forsake their allegiances, forsake their memories, forsake their love. Because uh, in verse 3 it says, There are captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth saying sing us one of the songs of Zion so the evil men who had already taken away everything we hold dear were now demanding that we laugh and sing happy songs about the very city and the very people that we loved the very city and the very people that they had ripped away from us Laugh and sing happy songs. The Babylonians were calling God's people to forsake reality. Their reality. To mock... Thanks. <clears throat> Thank you. It's a good deacon right there. Uh, the Babylonians were calling God's people to mock their own history. To make a mockery of their own people, their beloved people, and their city and the temple, and, and their own God, really, ultimately. But the captives couldn't do it. God's people, they couldn't take it. Right? Their pain was overwhelming, and they collapsed under their grief. It's not hard for us to imagine. By the rivers of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. They refused to do the song and dance that their captors demanded of them. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, Right? Effectively telling their tormentors, go climb a tree. Maybe their grief was so devastating that they determined they were never going to sing for joy again. What further use did they have for the instruments of their psalms? How shall we sing Yahweh's song in a foreign land? How can we do it? Now up to this point, all kinds of suffering peoples might be able to relate to some degree. All kinds of people everywhere in the world might be able to relate to this kind of pain. Whether you're talking about the Jews during the Holocaust of World War II. Whether you're talking about the millions of refugees today who are driven in, uh, to live in foreign lands. But everything said in the psalm after this point. Everything said in the psalm after this point is a miracle of the Holy Spirit and can only be prayed by Christians really. And here's what I mean. If you had suffered what these people had suffered to the point where all memory, all life was such torment, was such pain, everything around you was just a terrible reminder of your pain and a, a mockery of your pain. If you had suffered like that, you would be sorely tempted just to want to forget it all. All right? Put it out of your mind. Do whatever it takes just to ignore it. Do what the Babylonians suggest. I mean, there's, in a sense, they're trying to help you get, get over the past. That's all 
gone now. You have a new life you can enter into now. Forget your old life. Forget your old people. Forget Jerusalem. Move on. Try to make a new life for yourself here in Babylon. Look at us. We're happy. Join us. But God's people, uh, even though it was so painful for them to do it, they pledged faithfully to remember. To remember. To remember their city, even though it now lay in ruins. It was a haunted place. To remember where they belong, even though it's a terribly painful memory and they can't get back to where they belong. Verses 5 and 6, If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill, my ability to play the instruments. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. Let me not be able to speak or sing. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy. So they'd sing no songs at all, if not the songs of Zion. The songs of the city where God dwelt among his people, their true home that had been ripped away from them. Humanly speaking, all their hope had been ripped away. They're never going to see that place again. But they had more than human resources. They had the promise of Yahweh to restore what had been lost. God's been talking about this moment, this event in the life of his people for years, for decades, maybe centuries. He's been talking about this, and they had the promises of Yahweh that he was going to restore what had been lost. So they held on to the reality of Jerusalem, even though they were prevented from enjoying it as a present reality. That kind of uh, faith, and that kind of hope, and that kind of love is a miracle of the Holy Spirit. And here's another big one. They continue to pray to Yahweh. If you had suffered what these people had suffered, you would be sorely tempted to forsake your God. Right? After all, apparently, your God has forsaken you, hasn't he? Uh, in fact, Yahweh has been, again, telling his people that he would bring Babylon down on them in judgment. This is coming from God's hand. And now here they were, and it was worse than they ever could have imagined. By all external evidence, Yahweh had turned against them. Yahweh had abandoned them. When you survey the circumstances of your life, and you see how terrible it is, and God had told you it was going to be that way, wouldn't you be tempted, sorely tempted, to forsake your God, to believe that he's abandoned you, or else the gods of Babylon were stronger than him and they overcame him, or else there's just no Yahweh at all. It's just all fake. Whatever the case, when you suffer great evil, and this is a pretty universal human experience, when you suffer great evil, like God's people suffered at the hands of Babylon, you're facing the problem of evil. You're facing the problem of evil, and the common solution to that problem seems to be reject God. Reject Him. Walk away from Him. Clearly, He's turned against you in some form or fashion. <clears throat> if He's real, even, 
then he must either be cruel or impotent to allow such terrible things to happen to his own people, the people that he says he loves. So what's the point of praying to this God anymore? Would you do it? Well, the people of God singing this psalm fully embrace the reality of the problem of evil they suffer. They can't escape from that reality. And they also trust Yahweh, and they take their reality to him in prayer. So Ian Proven um, is preaching a sermon on this, and uh, there's a quote from him that's on the front cover of the bulletin. He says that prayer that does not deal in reality is not prayer at all. If we stop dealing with God in the midst of the reality of the world, in the midst of the reality of what's in our own hearts, if we start pretending, if we stop looking for justice and stop addressing God directly about the lack of justice in the world, then very soon we shall stop dealing with reality and with God at all. By a miracle of the Holy Spirit, we continue to bring our reality to God in prayer, even in our bewilderment, even in our real deep pain, even when it seems that he isn't there, or he doesn't hear, or he doesn't care. Verse 7, Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, the day Jerusalem fell. How they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. They taunted. Edom was a neighboring nation. They were descendants of Esau. Um, it was a nation that was always like a thorn in the side of God's people and who cheered on those who would hurt God's people. They were more like spectators on the sidelines usually, not the ones doing the major damage, but uh, those who would sweep in like jackals after everything was destroyed. And, uh, and pillage and then laugh at the people of God. Uh, the prophecy of Obadiah is, um, is about the judgment of Edom for their part in the fall of Jerusalem. This is what the people are praying. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites. And O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed. They know the prophecies. They know that Babylon was going to be this instrument of God's judgment in their life, and then Babylon themselves, they would be judged. They would be destroyed. God would wrap up those loose ends. That's what he said. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. The miraculous thing is that not only do Yahweh's people continue to pray, they entrust their vengeance to him. That's what's happening here. They entrust their vengeance to him. And this is something you can only do by the help of the Holy Spirit. Look, it's absolutely normal to want some kind of vengeance for such atrocities being done to you and your people, to see your little babies killed by wicked people. It's absolutely normal to want vengeance. In fact, again, there is such a thing as holy vengeance, which is good and right. It's good and right to want it. God taught his people how to judge. 
and how to execute vengeance, how to execute justice. And he taught them an eye for an eye. It's that law of just retribution. If someone takes something from you and is found truly guilty of it, then it is just to take the same from them. But our desire for vengeance is corrupted by our sin. It always is. Even victims of injustice, victims of injustice, are not innocent of sinful reactions to the injustice. They have sinful reactions to the injustice. Sinners want vengeance, but not for God's reasons. Hardly ever for God's reasons. Sinners want vengeance for their own reasons. They they don't want vengeance in God's way. They want vengeance in their way. We're prone to take more than just retribution. If someone took our eye, we wouldn't be satisfied with just taking their eye. We'd want their life. We'd want it all to go down in flames for what they've done to us. The idea of avenging ourselves has been universal throughout history. It's very popular in our culture. Movies that make big bucks are movies about revenge. You think the Taken trilogy. You think the John Wick trilogy in the course of a few short years. They're just cranking out movies that make hundreds of millions of dollars. All about avenging yourself. When someone hurts me, I have a very clear picture of what they deserve. And without stopping to ask whether I should even do it or not, I dwell on that picture in my imagination, that picture of what I understand to be justice. I will dream of opportunities to execute my justice. And if given the opportunity, I would take my pound of flesh, maybe two. It's instinctive to take matters into our own hands. We take upon ourselves the mantle of judge, jury, and executioner. This is what sinners do, and that's where we go all wrong. The scriptures never hold forth justice or vengeance as a path to personal satisfaction, to assuage my distress over my loss. True justice, true justice, God's justice, is setting things right, setting things right for his people, for reasons and in ways that we might not be able to fully comprehend. Because we are so overwhelmed with the grief and the pain of the injustices. The true violation that is done against us, when injustice is committed against us, the true violation done by sinners is sin against God. Not first and foremost, what they've done to me, what they've done against me, but it's sin against God. But I'm stuck on dwelling what was done to me and, and mine. I'm stuck there. And I can't get out of that. God's people know, therefore, that we cannot trust our own judgment. Even when we're the victims of injustice. We can't trust our own judgment. God doesn't say, vengeance is bad. Stop wanting that. He says, vengeance is mine. I'll repay. He says, do not take matters into your own hands. You will botch it. You'll leave it to me. 
And he says that because he's the only one whose judgment can be trusted. God is the only true, the only righteous, the only good judge. He's the only one who knows what is truly wrong with every injustice. And he's the only one who knows how to truly make every one of those things right. He's the only one who is blessed in his righteous judgment. As it says, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you've done to us, who, who avenges us. Blessed shall he be who executes his justice. He's the only one who's blessed in his righteous judgment. Only he is not corrupted by evil when he executes his vengeance. And by the help of his Holy Spirit, his people are able to trust that. Just to trust that. To trust that he will bring about justice for us, even when things seem to have gone sideways and we can, say, we can see no way out of our suffering. It's one of his first promises to Abraham in Genesis 12. Yahweh promised to bless those who bless his people and to curse those who dishonor his people. In fact, you can take that all the way back to the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. The serpent who tricked humanity into their self-destructive sin against God, the serpent was the first one to be cursed. Along with his seed, cursed be all those who stand against God's true humanity, against God's people. His people turn over their desire for vengeance to him. That's what this psalm is praying. His people ask him to do what he knows is right, what he alone knows is right, and they even do it right in the face of their enemies. They have so entrusted themselves to the Lord's judgment that when their enemies ask for a song, sing us a song. Okay, we'll sing you a song of the Lord's judgment of you right in front of them. That's impossible apart from a miracle of the Holy Spirit. That's a supernatural way to respond to the sins and the injustices of others that are done against you. Only the Spirit of Jesus Christ himself can help you to pray this way. No one ever suffered grief like Jesus. He found himself utterly alone in a hostile land. This whole world, hostile to him wandering the haunted ruins of a world that was created for love, but instead is filled with hate. But he faithfully pledged to remember his people always, as painful as that might be, for the joy that was set before him, set above his highest joy. Surrounded by his enemies, he had the courage to proclaim that they were doomed to destruction. His tormentors called him to forget where he came from to forsake his mission to deny his special relationship with God, but by the power of the Holy Spirit, he remained faithful. And Peter says, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. He didn't take matters into his own hands. He didn't lash out in retaliation. He didn't avenge himself, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Even when he cried out from the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He still prayed. He still committed his spirit to God, and he still trusted that his father would make things right. 
And now, God has made things right for Jesus. God has vindicated Jesus. He has delivered Jesus from all of his enemies, even from death itself. He has set Jesus forever beyond the reach of any of his enemies. He's given Jesus all power over his enemies. And now, because Jesus entrusted himself to God's judgment, which is the perfectly right thing to do, because Jesus entrusted himself to God's judgment, all judgment has been entrusted to Jesus. And he shall come again to judge all peoples everywhere, whether living or dead. Jesus gives his own spirit to his people to help us to do what he has done, to help us submit ourselves to God's judgment, to trust his judgment above our own, to await his judgment with patience, even though we suffer great trials and great injustice. Jesus gives us his own spirit to remain faithfully committed to his people, to our people. Even when that's very painful. Jesus faithfully endured the problem of evil where it intersected his life and his spirit lives in you to help you live in the real world, this world filled with injustices, to live here facing the problem of evil, to face it with faith and hope and love in the God who has demonstrated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus that he knows how to judge justly and he will make all things right. You can, you can entrust your judgment to him about that. Amen. <clears throat> Let's pray. Father, we uh, come to you now, as always, in prayer, um, realizing that we don't understand a lot of the things that we're asking for when we pray. Um, we're asking you to do what you know is best. And when it comes to this, uh, this how do we live with pain and injustice? How do we act toward those who've done evil to us, um, to your people, for Christ's sake? Uh, there's a lot of ways we don't even know what to ask. But we trust that you do know what is best. We submit ourselves to your judgment. We wait for your judgment with eagerness and with patience. And the only way we're able to do so is by the power of your Holy Spirit. So we pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit so that we can live in this world as people with hope. People who trust in you, who entrust ourselves to you just as Jesus has entrusted himself to you. Just as you have vindicated him and made things right for him, we look forward to the day when you will vindicate us and you make right, everything right for us in the resurrection. We pray that that day would come soon. We pray that you would do to the enemies of the church as you see fit. And we pray that you would grant us um, some kind of contentment, some kind of peace as we wait for your judgment, for the execution of your righteousness in all the earth. We wait for it with longing and with turmoil in our hearts. We pray that you would help us with that by your Holy Spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.